Good evening, folks. Franz Weinschenk here, your host on Valley Writers Read, a weekly radio show which features only Valley Writers reading stories that they themselves have written. And tonight we've got two short stories for you, both written by authors we've had on many times. The first story is by Aubrey writer James Benelli, which he entitles Paper or Plastic. And the second is by Ed Miller, entitled Night Sweats. Here is Lee Murray reading Paper or Plastic, and then Ed Miller reading Night Sweats. Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. And little man, little Lola wants you. Make up your mind to have no regrets. Recline yourself. Resign yourself, you're through. I'll always get what I'll aim for. And your heart and soul is what I can. Paper or plastic? Will that be paper or plastic, ma'am? The awkwardly, pimply-faced bad boy said, doing exactly as he'd been trained, following Save Smart protocol. The cans, loaves, and oranges tumbled off the checker's non-stop conveyor belt faster and faster as he tried to keep up with the ever-increasing workload. Plastic. Oh, no, I meant paper, replied the elegant shopper, a slight smile crossing her overmade, puffed-up lips. The lad neatly packed the bags to the top. Would you like help taking these to your car, ma'am? said the sophomoric teenager, his voice cracking. Yes. Yes, please. Why, that would be so nice of you, Tim. That is the name on your apron, isn't it? Yeah, my name is Tim, stuttered the nervous kid. Her walk was deliberate, her stride athletic but poised. She was tall, tan, and radiated beauty in a handsome, mature package. He followed her to a red Jaguar convertible. The car looked like it was going a hundred miles an hour standing still. The top was stowed snugly for the summer. She pressed her key and her trunk opened silently. This is my car, Tim, right here. The completely impressed cart pusher was gangly, lacking the maturity of sophistication and coordination. He was cloaked in virginity, awkwardness, and a lack of self-esteem. Wow, this is so cool. Like, you get to drive this? Like, I mean, is it yours? Yes, Tim, it's mine. Do you like it? The boy smiled from ear to ear. Oh, Tim, she said in a soft, pleading voice. I sprained my back diving into my pool yesterday, and I... Well, I know this is a lot to ask, but my condo is just two blocks from here. I just can't carry these heavy bags up the stairs. I know I shouldn't even think of asking this, but would you please ride home with me and help me carry the bags up the stairs? Please, oh, please, be a dear boy. We'd be back in a jiffy, and the store is really busy, and if we hurry, 
Nobody will even know you're gone. Please, oh, please, Tim, be a dear boy. She slipped a 20 into his pocket. The half-dead stick-like parking tree that had offered a tiny bit of shade to the car must have moved 10 feet because the jag was now baking in the burning sun. The same merciless sun that beats down on people's heads, baking their brains, encouraged risky thoughts to burst forth anew, as if they were now good ideas. The August heat had cooked the seats of the car, too. They were sticky hot on her white shorts. Her pink Hello Kitty t-shirt clung to her body like wet gauze. The desert dry wind offered little relief except to dry the sweat. I guess, well, be cool, lady, and don't tell no one. I'm saving up my money to buy me a car and, like, well, you know what I mean, okay? It's fine, Tim. Just duck your cute little head down and no one will even miss you. She put her hand on his curly mop of blonde hair, helping him stay out of sight as she left the store parking area. Her hand was wet. The Jag XK slipped quietly from first to second gear, smoothly just a slight pressure in the back of the seat as she accelerated east on Herndon. Timmy's red apron flapped in the comfortable's oven-like breeze. Like, man, what a ride. This is so bad. This baby must have cost 10,000 bucks or 50,000, lady. I ain't supposed to be nowhere out of the store lot. You, you know what I mean? Trust me, Timmy. We'll be just a few minutes, and you won't even be missed, my dear. I'll have you back in a jiffy. Just a jiffy, she replied slowly for effect. Nobody'd called him Timmy except his mom. Please, call me Lola. My name's Lola Timmy, Lola Wilson. Her voice was calming, almost motherlike, putting the kid more or less at ease. She hummed her favorite song, Whatever Lola Wants, Lola Gets. The drive was considerably longer than the two blocks she had promised, but nobody seemed to notice. After many turns in the curving residential area streets, the jag slowed as Lola approached the gated, ivory-covered entrance to her condo. The gate opened and then silently closed behind the car. They had now entered her world, completely shutting out the busy city behind. It was shady and cool under the towering eucalyptus trees. No one saw them enter the complex, and her condo was in a very private corner, discreetly hidden from any view that nosy neighbors might find intriguing. The garage door opened, and the car was now safely inside. Then the door descended, draping the driver and her twittering passenger in dusk-like darkness. Timmy helped the nice lady unload her bags. Oh, Timmy, you poor dear, you're sweating so. Here, you just relax by the pool. I'll just only be a moment, I promise. She untied his red apron and slipped it easily over the pimply kid's head. Lola sashayed through the French doors, a bag of groceries in one arm, and the red apron over her shoulder. Her back pain has suddenly vanished. She danced away toward her bedroom, softly humming her favorite tune. Mm -hmm. Be back in a jiffy, hun. We need a quick dip. It's so damn hot here in this boring one-horse town, she shouted over her shoulder. The patio thermometer stood at 100 degrees. 
Like, what the crap am I doing here? I ain't never been in a pad like this, man. Like, never. It's cool, man. Wow. Like, we could party hard and get real crazy. Like, like a keg of beer, man. Like some peppermint schnapps, some weed. The nervous kid kept his thoughts to himself, but he could not control his expressions. His eyes darted from the patio to the house, from one wall to the other. There were statues, paintings, things the like of which he had never seen. It was fabulous. The small pool was completely surrounded by exquisite landscaping, with clear crystal water cascading over marble statues of naked Roman goddesses. The trickling water completely cancelled any intruding sounds from the outside world, creating Eden-like sun-dappled stones. The sweet aroma of jasmine and orange blossoms drifted over the patio like a soft cloud. Do you like it, baby? Lola's soft voice cooed from the half-closed French doors. Slowly, very slowly, they opened. Her tall, firm body was accented by her gray-blonde hair, pulled back in a neat ponytail. Timmy saw the save-smart apron. Yes, she was modeling the apron, and only the apron. Not another stitch of clothing, only shoes. Silver high heels. She strolled out onto the shady patio, walking the silly walk that models walk on the runway, each foot deliberately crossing in front of the other, exaggerating her lovely firm body. She slowly walked past him to the palm tree and then turned and walked toward her excited private audience of one. She stopped dead still in front of Timmy and slowly pirouetted. The apron was barely covering her front. Her tan backside needed no cover. Her cheeks, beautifully tanned, showed only a toothpaste-white perfect bikini outline. There was no bikini there today. She slowly untied the bow behind her neck, and the red apron fell to the floor, save smart side up. Sweat ran down Timmy's chin and dripped onto his company logo brand Oxford cloth shirt. His mouth was suddenly as dry as cotton. No words came from his lips. His testosterone-fueled adolescent dreams were never this good. Timmy had never seen mature breasts. He just stared, transfixed, frozen, statue-like. Her long, slender fingers slowly touched his shirt, her expert hands unbuttoning each button, opening the front of his shirt, his hairless chest now shining with sweat. Her hands were fully confident, sliding down his chest to the top button of his jeans. She stopped and looked Timmy squarely in the eyes. Her eyes reflected the deep translucence of the pool, she hesitated just a tiny moment. Estrogen facing testosterone. A slight pause in the performance, enhancing the effect. Whirr came a soft sound from the front of the garage as the doors began rolling up. A corvette rumbled mightily into its stall like a stalking predator. The sound snapped the two actors in this little drama into sudden alertness, like a bucket of ice water or a slap on the face. As suddenly as this one-act show had started, its closing curtains smashed down even quicker. Oh, God, no, it's my husband. Quick, through the hedge, hurry, run, kid, don't look back. Go, go, go. 
Lola headed for the French doors, kicking off her high heels. Running is extremely difficult when one is naked, even barefooted. Trying hard to regain some form of composure, she dashed through the French doors. She was flip-flopping everywhere as she grabbed a robe from the bathroom door. She wrapped it around her and turned just in time to greet Frank, coming in the back way. It's four o'clock. You surprised me. Are you okay? Lola managed to whisper, slightly out of breath. Tim was running faster and faster, darting in and out through the Herndon traffic, faster than he ever ran in cross-country in high school. There was no time to waste. Sweat was flowing and his shirt was drenched. He rounded the drive into Save Smart and then he slowed to gather up a few stray carts, trying to justify his actions. He then sprinted at full steam, rolling the line of carts into their place in the front of the store. Then he ran into the station. Dude, hey, dude, like, where you been, man? said his checker. They've been paging you, like, where's your apron? You wouldn't believe it, man. Like, even if I told you... You wouldn't believe it, said the scrawny kid, trying hard to exhibit some kind of adult coolness. Charlie wants me in San Francisco to meet the lenders at eight o'clock in the morning. I just stopped by to get some clothes and then I'm off to the city tonight. I should be back by noon tomorrow. Hey, why not throw some things in your bag and come along, said the smiling Frank. They were standing in the bathroom. Lola was doing her best to control her heart rate and respiration, but with mixed results. I can't. I'm too busy, she said as a bead of sweat curled down her chin, loosening pancake makeup and depositing the silt on her white terry cloth robe. You know I'm volunteering at the church tomorrow, or did you forget? Can't you call in and cancel? We'll have dinner at the wharf and maybe a romantic evening. We'll stay at the Hyatt Embarcadero, and I could sure use your company on the drive. Oh, come on, don't be such a fuddy-duddy. Loosen up a little. You could use a little excitement in life. We could use some fun, and I bet you you could have a great time. Lola thought a bit about it, trying to think of a reason to decline. The church ladies are counting on me to serve the tea, and I just can't let them down. Or at least, I shouldn't. She paused, thinking over. Oh, heck, it's so boring here, and I do want to get out of town. I'll do it. I'll call and beg off. Just give me half an hour, and I can be ready. No woman can get ready to go on a trip in half an hour, and Lola was the rule, not the exception. She let the cool shower run and run as she reflected on the events of the day. She was furious at herself for the ridiculous act she had performed earlier this afternoon. She was furious, yes, and yet she was titillated. It was, after all, such great fun. Nobody was hurt. It was just a little innocent flirting. She'd always fantasized of being a stripper, yet she'd never had the chance. Never, that is, until today. It was like letting something out that was just held inside too long. After all, she was still young, and her body was perfect. Just this once, she promised herself. It will never happen again. I'm so young, she whispered. Yes, I'm still young, and look, my body is still perfect, she mumbled, smiling, standing in front of the full-length mirror. Walking out the back door, their bags in his hands, Frank noticed something red by the pool. It was a safe-smart apron. Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Take off your coat, don't you know you? Can't win. You know, exception to the rule. 
Nobody in the neighborhood had seen him leave, but left he had. Favored by a rising breeze and the thin light of afternoon, his body made a strange ornament among the limbs of the old willow. That's where we found him, under the willow. Norm called 911, and then we all walked to the curb and waited. Hung himself straight up, Norm said. Can you beat it? No, I said, I can't believe it. Johnson considered the side yard and what lie beyond and then shifted and turned to the street. Can't feature it myself, he said. He passed a toothpick from one corner of his mouth to the other. A skeptic by nature, that was Johnson. The police arrived soon enough, the coroner too, but they weren't the polished city boys you might expect in Las Vegas or L.A., these were small-town constabulary. After they harumphed around, they commenced to cut old Phil down. Stand back, one said. Then they lost their grip, and with a thud, Phil hit the ground. Jesus, Norm said. Look at his face. We did. It had kind of a sour-looking color, like cabbage. Think I'm going to be sick. Norm wandered to the edge of the property and found a fence post and stayed there. Maybe it was the divorce, I said to Johnson. I misdoubt he ever got over it. He loved that woman. The Ice Queen, Johnson said. A kid came up. I say kid. He wasn't a kid. Young guy, 30 or so. Well-fed. Too well-fed. Slacks and sweater. Penny loafers and Buddy Holly glasses half-mournful, hangdog expression, our detective. Well, he said, my name is Russo. He flashed his shield. His notebook was already open, and he began by jotting down a few items, our names, addresses, where we could be reached. I'm told you all played cards together, he said. That right? I told him, yeah, every Saturday. A little poker? Hold him, low ball, whatever. Play for any real money? Oh yeah, we're rich. We're high rollers. I turned my pockets out and the detective smiled. Mostly we just get together, I said, pass the time. You say he lived alone? Yeah. No next of kin? None to speak of. Kids? Siblings? He had a brother, Roland, but he died. Railroad crossing. Your friend, did he ever talk about harming himself? Not with me, I said, and exchanged a look with Johnson. Johnson shook his head. Phil never said anything to me, he said. The detective stared at Norm a moment. You all right over there? Norm cast a hand without looking up. He was okay. I need to talk to you then. Come over and join us. Turning to Johnson and me, who found him? 
Norm here, I said. He found him first. Phil wouldn't answer his door, wouldn't answer his phone. But the car was in the driveway, sitting there. We figured he had to be home. So Norm let himself through the gate to see if the back door was locked. And there he was, Norm said. I ran out of there. As any normal person would have, the detective said. Your name? Into his notebook went Norm's contact info. You know, Johnson ventured, what happened here, it could have been because of something else. There could be some other explanation. Here we go, I thought. You don't know, you know, I'm just saying. That's true, the detective said, though he didn't pretend much of an effort to listen. He acted as if he knew what was coming, as if he had been down this road before, and I wouldn't be surprised if he had. Phil had everything going his way, Johnson continued. I mean, listen, nice home, good income, no bills, no worries. Trevor, I said, you don't know anything about it. Johnson frowned and moved his toothpick. What about this woman, the detective said, the ice queen? His ex, I said, Rose Fay. I looked at Johnson. Marcos? Marcos, he affirmed. Rose Faye Marcos, Filipino lady, good-looking, shady side of 40. After Phil's first wife died, he got lonely and depressed and began writing Rose Faye. He'd met her through an agency, some dating agency, women in other countries. So she and Phil wrote letters back and forth, called each other, emailed each other. This went on a while. This long-distance courtship, this long-distance affair... Then finally he went over there to Luzon to meet his love, to meet her family, to marry her and bring her home, Johnson said. They split the sheets two years ago, maybe three. Anyhow, they split the sheets and that was that. Who knows where she's shacked up now or who with. She flew in and out of his life like a bird, like there was no tomorrow. Until today, the detective said, unfortunately. One of the boys zipped up the body bag. How long were they married? Just as long as it took the green card to clear, a couple of years. No connection now? Haven't seen her, couldn't say, but I don't think so. Don't know where we could reach her by chance. No, probably hooked up with some old boy somewhere. Norm slipped his specs in his shirt pocket. He said it had been a while since he'd seen death up so close and personal. Johnson and I nodded, said it gave him the jumps. You and me both, I said. They toted our friend off behind us, banged through the gate, ducked under the tape, went on, stowed him in a black van out front. Might as well pack it in, Norman, I said. No profit staying around here. Reckon not, Johnson agreed. Well, Norm said, I'm going to slip off then, if it's all right. He shook hands all around, said this was a nasty business. Call him if we needed him, and walked out of the yard. The detective addressed Johnson. Between you and me, he said, this seems pretty routine. There's no evidence of foul play, no marks on the body, no trauma. Just the abrasion, the rope abrasion, that's all. A necktie trip, as we call it at the academy. He paused. 
I'm sorry, I know it's a tough thing to understand, the why part. Man ends his life, a good man, a friend to his friends, a decorated veteran, I'm told. Indeed he was, I said. Nam, Johnson said, in country. Two tours, I said. Phil about cashed his check at Quezon. We're all ex-military, Johnson explained. The detective nodded. Thank you for your service, he said. Johnson almost chuckled. Instead, he shifted the toothpick again. De nada, he said. Anyway, the detective continued, such a man, as you say, a man such as your friend. He paused again. Why does he do it? What drives him? Behind us, the black van bore Phil's body away. Who knows, the detective concluded. The question is above my pay grade. Johnson listened, but wasn't impressed. Find a note? The detective swung into his crown vic. No note, he said. Not so far, but that's not uncommon. Still, it would have helped. It might have offered an answer or something, a clue as to his intentions, as to his overall state of mind, as to why. Johnson folded his arms, elevated that eyebrow, that angular BS meter. We'll see what the forensics tells us. We'll do our job. He sat a moment and then fired up the motor and pulled away from the curb. The motto on the trunk read, to protect and serve. We stood there. I don't know, Johnson said. What do you think? Think old Johnny Law is right? Think he did it, old Phil? Waltzed into the backyard and flat hung himself, all public like that? Judge not, I shrugged. Well, I don't think so. He was a tired old man, like me and like you. I ain't that tired. Count me out, Mitch. Who knows what a man thinks about in the dark hours of the night? Johnson shook his head. That ain't it. Not in my book. Who knows another man's thoughts? Nobody can say the soul gets weary and the heart gets sick and then one day they're gone. That's all there is. A headache was coming on, a fierce one, the kind that makes you ache all over, sick to your stomach, the kind that makes you want to pull the roof in over your head. I have to book, I said. I'm out of here too, Johnson said. This day has hit bottom. I rounded the corner and began the hike through the alley toward my place. Parked ahead was a camper pickup, nosed under a tottering carport. Norm's pickup, that big green camouflage mother of his, that hay rube camper shell, that fading simplify on the back bumper. I heard something, some human sound, and came upon the cab, the driver's side. Norm was cradling the wheel, sort of resting there. He turned and looked at me. There was something about him, something weird. Norm, I said, what's going on? He started the pickup, threw it in gear, and gunned it down the alley. Then came a squall of tires. He lurched onto the street and sped off. Nerves, I figured. That's all I could think of. The coroner's report came back a few days later. Nothing untoward in the results, just as Russo prophesied. 
Then the funeral came and went, what there was of it. And in the estate sale, the parade of browsers and second-hand dealers roaming through the house. And then there wasn't anything to remember about old Phil, except for a few card games and that last hard image of him hanging in the lonesomeness of the yard. The ladder spilled at his feet. Life reduced to nothing. When a for sale sign went up in front of Phil's house, one went up in front of mine, too. I told Audrey I wanted to look out a window and see something new. I wanted something fresh. Let's move, I said. Let's do it. So we talked it over and prayed on it and finally decided that that's what we would do. Move. That spring, we sold our place and made tracks. We've always liked Lodi, south of Sacramento. Our daughter lives there, our two grandchildren. It's kind of a small place, like Kaiser. In a way, it's kin to small-town Nevada, the Washoe Valley towns Audrey and I know and love so well, affordable and assuming conservative, good fishing nearby, bass and perch, some catfish, lakes and sloughs and boat rentals. So that's where we landed, Lodi. Except now we're set up in a trailer park, a first for us, and a situation that takes some getting used to, but with the highway noise and various distractions. Neighbors and their low-class goings-on, fussing and fighting, dogs loose and barking, a hundred televisions contending with one another. And my friend there... In the tree, old Phil. That comes back to me, as I said. That hard image of him. And usually at a late hour, all the grainy bits and pieces of that. Like an old-time movie, I have no choice but to sit through again. The dark confusion of it. The weight of it. Who knows the weight of a man blown up by a mortar shell? Think about that. Who knows the weight of a man piggybacked 40 yards out of the sucking mud of a rice field, the platoon outflanked and bullets whistling past. And under the weight of that man, blood on blood, the one soldier exhausted, dizzy, half-blind, legs giving way under their burden, and the two men as one collapsing on the other side. Who knows how long it takes the wounded man to die? And who knows the things he says in that hallowed space between life and death, that space occupied by God who listens and feels and understands. The wounded man is waiting, waiting when he's not screaming, screaming in pain and waiting, waiting for the medevac, waiting for the chaplain, the last rites, waiting for the maker. How much does all that weigh and how long does a man carry it? Answer me that. A reasonable question, surely. Because time doesn't pass in those moments. Instead, time gathers its artillery, its field pieces, and redeploys inside the perimeter, assumes possession of all contained therein, your soul. Dwells there a while, fifty years, say, but on the down low until one day it just decides to come knocking and says remember me 
Remember all we went through together? Who can get a good night's sleep with all that? It's no vacation. That was Lee Murray reading Paper or Plastic and Ed Miller reading Night Sweats. In the first story, a very rich lady entices Timmy, a bag boy at a large grocery store, to not only help her get her shopping bags into her Jaguar, but lets her talk him into going home with her so she can seduce him. Unexpectedly, her husband shows up, and it's all Timmy can do to get back to where he's supposed to be working. Big change of mood in that second story where we meet a veteran who, probably because he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, commits suicide. His buddies come to see him, the police investigate, but all that doesn't really change much of anything. Friends, as we told you at the outset, we've had both of these writers on our program a number of times. James Benelli is a retired airline pilot who currently lives in the foothill community of Aubrey. He has published a book entitled Ski Tales, The History of China Peak and Sierra Summit. And then our second author, Ed Miller, also hardly needs any introduction. His work has appeared in West Branch and Whiskey Island, and a chapbook of his called The Whole Enchilada was published by Cherina Baba Press. We thank both of these authors for their contributions to our show over the years and encourage them to continue to send us stories that we know our listeners really enjoy. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our author will be Hope Nisley. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Riders Read.